start. Um, welcome to the Hillary Term Seminar Series. And this term series is, is uh, convened by the Welfare Cluster, which is one of the five thematic clusters in the Compass Research Program. Um, the cluster itself addresses the relationship between migration and welfare states, particularly issues around the, the boundaries and the determinants of welfare state citizenship and the basis of welfare rights and entitlements at transnational, national and local uh, levels. And the, so far, the cluster has had a strong focus on research topics such as um, on migrant care workers, uh, migrant health, and access of undocumented children to services. But we are in the process of developing a, a, a program of research in this cluster. And so the seminar series was created to help us think through the areas and themes to focus on in the next few years. Um, the aim of the series is to explore the relationship between the development of, the, of welfare states and the framework of entitlements and restrictions for migrants, which are found in um, entry and settlement criteria, and the impact of these restrictions and entitlements on welfare state inclusion uh, or ex and exclusion. So it takes an interdisciplinary approach. So we have um, uh, areas of so social policy, law, history, and we've got um, a series of internationally renowned scholars um, who haven't spoken in the seminar series before. So the first half of the seminar um, series, the topics are the concept of civic stratification in relation to migrant rights, uh, the impact of the relationship between the welfare state and the labour market, and implications of anti-discrimination law on migrant rights, um, the relevance of international standards on economic and social rights um, of migrants, and then we have a seminar on uh, providing a historical perspective on uh, welfare entitlements. The second half of the series will look more at the implications of welfare state inclusion and exclusion for economic, social and civic participation of migrants. Uh, with, we have seminars on family migrants in the UK and family migrants in the Netherlands and the comparative analysis of the impact of welfare rights policies on the integration of migrants in different countries. The final seminar will take the form of a panel of practitioners who will speak um, on their experiences of working with migrants in facilitating their access to a, a range of rights in healthcare, in education, employment and legal representation. So um, to introduce the first speaker, series, uh, I'll hand over to Sarah. Thanks. Well, we really couldn't have anyone who is more appropriate to kick off the series than Lydia Morris, which is one of the best-known uh, scholars in this uh, field. Lydia is a, has a chair in the Department of Sociology at Essex. She's currently the research director there, the former head of the department, but uh, like many of the best people, started life as an anthropologist, <laughs> I think, very appropriately for this department. Um, and I think early work focused on labour markets and welfare and poverty and that, not surprisingly, took her into an interest in migration and in particular the differential access to rights uh, of migrants across uh, Europe. Um, Lydia is perhaps best known for developing a theory of the stratification of rights and in that way, in a way bringing a particularly sociological uh, approach into the study of rights and the implications in practice of access or denial of rights. And it's today, I think, is going to tell us about the development of that approach, taking it right up into the research that we most recently conducted. So Lydia, thank you very much for being here. We look forward to hearing what you've got to say. Thank you. Thanks for asking me. Uh, it's my first visit to Compass. <laughs> very nice to see you all. 
Um, I was asked to speak on the way that I'd use this concept of civic stratification in relation to issues of migration and asylum. <coughs> and what I've tried to do is put together a kind of chronology of how I've used this term. And in doing that, try to show how my thinking about it and with it has developed over time. So I'll be making reference to several different projects which have been conducted really over the space of now about 15 years. Um, one sort of starting point for, for the issue um, struck me in relation to how our times have been characterised. So the epoch that we live in has been termed both the age of migration and the age of rights. And in a sense, my broad question is what's the relationship between those two things? And when I began work in this field in the mid-90s, there were two contrasting approaches in circulation, which you're no doubt familiar with. One you could think of as an expansive understanding of rights, which places an emphasis on universals as a driver of post-national society. And so you see the argument in Yasmin Soizel's work that universal personhood is superseding citizenship in terms of the status of access to rights. And the EU is commonly cited as the most developed example of this. More recent argument, I think in similar tone, um, speaks of an emergent cosmopolitanism. So for example, Ulrich Beck argues that we're witnessing a blurring of the boundary between citizen and migrant in relation to rights. So they, that kind of approach adds up to a sort of expansionist, positive emphasis on universals as enhancing the position of transnational migrants. <coughs> but I remember at the time that this work was current, um, thinking rather oddly that it it's coexists with almost daily evidence of aggressive immigration control. So you see deaths at sea, asylum seekers being returned to circumstances of danger. And against this post-national expansionist position, then there was the counter-argument which emphasised instead national closure and also emphasised the continuing symbolic and material significance of citizenship. Part of this uh, set of concerns emphasised defensiveness about welfare resources, concern about management of the labour market, and increasingly concern <coughs> about cultural and political character of migrant populations, particularly exacerbated by fears of terrorism. So there were these two counterposed positions. And in fact, you could find evidence to support either of them. Um, 
And I feel that each of them tends to overstate the case. And in fact, scholars in both camps would concede that there are tensions and contradictions in play. But these tensions and contradictions, I felt, were never really explicitly explored in the detail of research. And that was really how I came to my own focus, which was initially how to pursue this issue sociologically without either exaggerating or denying the two opposing positions. And I felt the key to this had to be recognising that there was contradiction and tension in play here. So if you think in the context of the EU, encouraging migrant entry, there's the assertion of human rights in relation to family unification and asylum. And there is also continuing employer demand at both the top and the bottom of the skills hierarchy. <coughs> Discouraging entry, there are controls in relation to access to welfare in the labour market and a limitation of rights through conditions that are imposed on entry and also through various deterrent manoeuvres. So then the question becomes, how do these contrasts translate into policy and practice, and how can we conceptualise the outcome? Uh, it's long been recognised that migration does entail different legal statuses, so I'm thinking of Thomas Hamar's famous distinction between citizens, denizens, and aliens. <coughs> but in fact, I think the reality is much more complex than that threefold distinction suggests, and increasingly so. And this is where the concept of civic stratification comes into play. Um, it's a way of thinking about this complexity. I took the concept from writing by David Lockwood, who was a colleague of mine at Essex. He used civic stratification to refer to a system of inequality in relation to the rights that are granted or denied by the state. His original article developing this term was actually focused on the internal inequalities generated by the functioning of citizenship. <coughs> but it seemed to me that it lends itself to a much wider spectrum of statuses. <coughs> and in fact, um, I think the thinking that's been done around the concept of civic stratification really offers an incipient sociology of rights. Um, David suggests there are two dimensions to this civic stratification. One is described in terms of inclusions and exclusions. And what that really means is formal entitlement or not to a right. He talks about the presence or absence of a right. So 
That's the inclusion and exclusion. And I have thought of it in terms of a formal dimension to civic stratification, what is legally written, if you like. The second dimension David mentions is the possession of moral and material resources, which he sees as shaping access to rights or affecting the enjoyment of a right. And he talks there in terms of gains and deficits, how somebody's experience of a rights regime can either be enhanced or detracted from by their possession of moral or material resources. And I think of that as the informal dimension of civic stratification. So you've got formal access to rights and you've got informal aspects of gain and deficit, both in operation in any regime of rights. By taking this conceptual framework and applying it to the issue of migrants' rights, I think we then have a way of steering a path between these two opposing positions of post-national expansion and national closure, and an instrument for thinking in more detail about when one dynamic or the other is in play and how. So it allows us to move beyond citizenship in thinking about rights, but also allows us to remain cautious about claims to universals. And this is perhaps a tension that's caught in Ulrich Beck's reference to cosmopolitanism as a fully achieved condition and cosmopolitanization as a process towards. So it's a different language, but I think um, it does really refer to that same tension uh, between expansive and restrictive developments in relation to rights. The other advantage of civic stratification is I think it helps to start thinking about rights as a tool of governance. And it helps to reveal the way that rights and controls can sit quite closely together. So the delivery of a right will often provide an opportunity for surveillance and control. Um, to be a bit more specific, the key rights that are at issue in relation to migration are welfare, family unification, the right to work, right to residence, and access to asylum or other forms of protection. And each of them are implicated in control in different ways. So denial of welfare in the early stages of a migrant's career obviously enforces self-maintenance and places a limit on qualification for residence as well. And a corollary of that is that immigration checks come to be built in to the delivery of welfare. Um, 
you can also see how labour market skills determine the terms of entry to a country, the terms of entry and stay. And you've seen that particularly developed in the introduction of a point system in this country and elsewhere. The mode of delivery of a right can act as a deterrent. Um, examples there would be dispersal of asylum seekers and the period when the voucher system was used as a means of maintenance. These were um, attempts to make applying for asylum seem less appealing. And more overt contractions of rights have also been used as a means of intended deterrence. In terms of the informal dimension, I think you can also think about the way a stigma can attach to certain types of claims. For example, the elaboration of the notion of the bogus asylum seeker. And this in itself, in a sense, amounts to a deficit in relation to the right, in that the stigma devalues the right, even assuming you can access it. Um, then the stigma also presumably would act as a deterrent to future claimants. So there are sort of little package of instances of what I mean when I say that rights and controls can sit quite closely together. Obviously there's speculation and debate on the force of human rights in overcoming such constraints. But human rights guarantees are not inconsistent with this account. So for example, the European Convention contains a hierarchy of absolute limited and qualified rights. Qualified rights are those which can have conditions attached to them. So they're acknowledged as universal human rights, but they can be constrained in certain circumstances. And you see that with reference to national economic well-being <coughs> in relation to restrictions on family unification. Um, even absolute rights will require interpretation, so they may not be quite as absolute as they seem, and I'll come to some examples of that later. Absolute rights can also be impaired by deficits in delivery and we've seen that in relation to asylum in the way the visa system works together with carrier sanctions there's no denial of the right to seek asylum but it has become prohibitively difficult to access so that would be an example of a deficit uh, in addition to the European Convention on Human Rights, there is a wide array of other transnational treaties and conventions, but they are often limited in scope in a variety of ways. Free movement in Europe is one obvious example where you have to start to interrogate who gets the right and on what terms they get the right. Um, other transnational treaties may apply to co-signatory countries only, so that limits their application. Um, and conventions in relation to migrants' rights are likely to be limited to the requirement of legal presence on the territory. So even 
expansive conventions in relation to rights can have these sorts of constraints built in. So in practice, at any given moment in any given country, there's a complex picture which is made up of interactions between supranational rights, transnational rights, and domestic law. And you have to have some understanding of the way all those levels function. So in a sense, that was the first stage of my research on civic stratification, was thinking about what the concept can do and the kinds of questions you can ask with it. I then did a, a piece of comparative empirical research, which was a study of three different immigration regimes, countries chosen for their differences, because what I was interested in was the question of, is it conceivable that the shape of civic stratification will look different in different countries? So that's what I was trying to, um, to look at, and I chose Germany, Britain, and Italy. And so I was trying to get a picture of what's the shape of civic stratification in each of these countries. I'll give you a quick sketch of what I found, but I should say I've never updated this research, and the empirical work dates from uh, around 2000. So the picture in these countries has changed. But what I found at that time, in Germany, was a system that I termed graduated selection, a highly elaborate and bureaucratized system of statuses, echoed by different systems of support, and also involving differently phased access to the labour market. So it was a multifaceted system as well as a multi-layered one. Um, in a sense, it's the paradigm case of a proliferation of these positions of partial membership. The most negative feature of the system was that people could be trapped for years in an indeterminate status, which um, is what's described by the term dull-dung toleration. There was a plan to phase it out, but I don't think they succeeded. Britain, in contrast, uh, I call the system of inclusion and exclusion. It's had a much simpler system of classification, less graduated, less multifaceted, People move more quickly to secure status. Access to employment tended to be more immediate and direct. But the cost of that was that the exclusions were firmer. And there was no equivalent to the German status of toleration. That meant people were less likely to be trapped long term in an indeterminate status but on the other hand, were perhaps more likely to be feeding uh, an underground population. Then the third country, Italy, I described as informal toleration. 
obviously has a much more recent history of migration. Its law was still developing at the time I did the study. There was pressure from the EU which had led to an intensification of control. There was and still is repeated use of regularisation that brought um, undocumented migrants into the legal system. So the key transition in Italy was that from unlawful to lawful status. The main feature of the system was that the formal regime was cross-cut in just about every sphere by informal practices and that applied to the labour market, to policing, to conditions of stay in the country and to access to support. So it was really a system of unofficial toleration or if you like a system of benevolence rather than rights. A corollary of that was also that there were inefficiencies in the formal system which often led to deficits in terms of access to rights. So that's, I, I just give those descriptions as a way of putting some flesh on the bones, if you like, of civic stratification. That was the sense I made of those countries, looking at them through the lens of civic stratification. If you looked at it today, I'm aware there's been convergence. Germany have simplified and moved a bit closer to the British model. Britain equally has become more complex and moved closer to the German model. And Italy has continued to use regularization and I'm sure that informal dynamic I described is still present. And my guess is that even as these countries converge in legal terms, you would still see national differences in terms of the way the system of civic stratification actually played out in practice, um, not least because of their different, the different histories of migration in the countries I've referred to. Because um, in fact, you've got with Britain the Commonwealth <coughs> system, with Germany a guest worker system, and Italy, a system that's grown up probably much more predominantly on the basis of clandestine migration. And the other interesting questions you can ask with this kind of data and still keeping civic stratification in mind, um, one is what's the scope for movement up and down the system? So how, what are the prospects of people differently placed within the system? I mean, it's a classic actual sort of social mobility question in a way for sociology, but done in terms of rights rather than social class. Um, the other interesting question would be how civic stratification is cross-cut by other differences. Um, differences, for example, of race, ethnicity or nationality. Just to give you one example of that, um, thinking of you know, how far do immigration statuses coincide with ethnic and national distinctions. Um, an interesting picture in Germany is that, again, at the time of my study, um, the dominant source of guest workers 
and the dominant source of asylum seekers were actually the same countries. They were Turkey and ex-Yugoslavia for both. But in the asylum statuses, and particularly this Duldum status, there was a concentration of Kurds and Bosnians. So you've got the same national groupings, but the immigration status divided them along ethnic lines within those national groupings. And that may have implications for ethnic relations and social cohesion. If you look at other countries and the, the pattern of coincidence between immigration status and ethnic identity will be different, but it will surely be in some way interesting. You could also look at how civic stratification is cross-cut by gender influences, um, by asking, for example, how do women migrate? And their migration is typically associated with the private sphere, either in relation to domestic work, care work, sex work, family unification. And each of those has implications for their access to rights. Their rights will often be mediated either through a household head, in the, in the case of domestic and private care work, through a spouse or through a pimp. And there are gender-specific problems in relation to asylum, which are well known, but it's harder to demonstrate political motives for persecution, very often, uh, for women asylum seekers. So these are just possibilities of how the analysis can be made more complex, but still holding on to the idea of civic stratification. When I come to reflect more generally on that research, I do have a sense of frustration, which is partly that what I did, in effect, was produce a static analysis of a changing field. And anybody that's working on migration, I'm sure, must have the experience of the, the, the field is shifting under your feet. And particularly in relation to comparative research, again, I'm sure it's a common experience, holding your breath and hoping that all of your countries will stay still at the same moment and allow you to say something definitive about it. In fact, I remember um, meeting Mark Miller at a conference and he said to me, what are you working on? And I said, I'm doing a comparative study of immigration regimes. He said, yes, I've been doing one for 15 years. You'll never finish it. <laughs> and, and in a sense, to finish it is artificial. You have to freeze the moment. So to go back to civic stratification, I've mentioned these two dimensions of analysis, the formal and the informal. But in fact, that neglects a third dimension, which is 
expansion and contraction, which can occur within a whole regime, it can occur for a particular group within a regime, it can occur for a particular area of rights. And the movement can be in either direction. Rights can both expand and contract. Um, I'm a bit worried about time, so I just mentioned briefly one that led me in one respect to think about the relationship between citizenship and migrants' rights, and that citizenship has often been used as the yardstick against which we measure migrants' rights, as the fullest realisation of rights, if you like. But in fact, what's happened in recent decades is an erosion of some of the rights of citizens as well. And so it's increasingly now the case that human rights are used as the yardstick against which citizenship is measured. So you can apply, see some of the same sort of disciplinary devices being applied in the terrain of citizenship, as I've been describing in relation to migration. Um, and I did do uh, an analysis of the new labor philosophy underpinning rights, and this was a philosophy of opportunity and responsibility which actually brings the position of citizens, migrants, and asylum seekers in some ways closer together in that they are all being um, exposed to this requirement of being the good and the responsible migrant or citizen. Um, so the good citizen is responsive to labour market needs, just as you're seeing the uh, search for highly skilled migrants and the closing down of opportunities for lesser skilled migrants. So I thought it was an interesting exercise to look at those three categories of rights alongside each other, uh, citizenship, migration and asylum. Asylum, of course, doesn't fit so readily with that opportunity responsibility discourse. Um, and they've increasingly really been locked off from mainstream society until a decision on their case is reached. Um, in relation to asylum seekers, we've seen very much an erosion of rights as deterrent. Um, and this takes me on to my more recent project. Um, when the Labour government was in power, they did introduce the language of a covenant with asylum seekers, in which no asylum seeker would allow to be destitute, in exchange for which asylum seekers would observe the rules, etc. I mean, it's not really meaningful as, a, as, a, as an agreement, but it's an attempt to use the language of contract, which you see running through quite a lot of their developments. But they reneged on this um, covenant, as they called it, in the 2002 Asylum and Immigration Act. Um, and this was um, the act which contained a measure to remove welfare from in-country asylum claimants. 
Um, there have been two previous attempts to do this under a Conservative government, and the measure had been opposed uh, by the Labour Party. But once in power, the Labour government actually introduced effectively the same measure. And this piece of policy has now been the subject of 15 different legal judgments over a period of 10 years. And so I felt it made, made for an interesting case study in relation to the dynamic of change in the field of rights. So it kind of offered me a case study of this expansion and contraction dimension of civic stratification. You can see um, the history of this measure as an instance of civic stratification in that it creates two different categories of asylum seeker with different rights. So it distinguished between in-country and out-of-court applicants. And there was opposition to the measure, um, as you would expect, um, and the argument was that the suggestion that in-country claimants were less likely to be genuine was not supported by the evidence. Nevertheless, the measure went ahead and uh, the rationale in parliamentary debate was quite explicit. It would deter the bogus asylum seeker and it would save the taxpayer money. One likely effect, seems to me, of um, statements of that kind is to undermine public perceptions of the moral worth of late claimers. And that um, resonates with that the informal dimension of civic stratification and what David Lockwood called moral and material resources. So I think that's an interesting feature of the move. Um, of course, once the measure was introduced, it collided with the Human Rights Act, which had been operative since the year 2000 and established the European Convention in Domestic Law and made it justiciable in UK courts. So there was a, a particular section of the 2002 Asylum and Immigration Act, section 55.5. In order to make the measure consistent with the requirements of the Human Rights Act, this section stated that implementation should not be such as to breach convention rights was not really clear how that could or should operate, and I'll come back to that in a moment. But there are four points of interest here for me in relation to civic stratification. Firstly, we've got, I think, an illustration of the way rights can be open to manipulation by the state in pursuit of policy goals. So it's an illustration of the connection between rights and controls. Secondly, there's a scope for a link between formal entitlement and informal status. 
So possession of a right can confirm social standing, while denial of a right may undermine social standing. This link together suggests the possibility of a kind of theory of change, such that moral and material resources can enhance entitlement to a right or can be engaged in claims making. And possibly the reverse dynamic would apply. And in this instance, the discrediting of in-country asylum claimants as a prelude to reducing their rights, so confirming them in their negative standing in society. So this is really trying to think a bit further about the possibility that Lockwood's two dimensions of rights, the formal and the informal, are in some way in interaction. There's related work um, on policymaking more generally that talks about target groups and the way the images of particular groups can be harnessed by politicians to bring about behavioural change. Um, and the fact that groups can change their position over time. Um, so you see what's been termed pendulum swings in policy. Um, and in fact, in-country asylum seekers are a good example of that. Their position over the last, let's say, 20 years has shifted um, from different statuses. Um, the article I have in mind talks about contenders, dependent, and deviant categories. And indeed, asylum seekers have shifted between all three and back again several times. If you combine an argument about target groups with thinking about civic stratification, then you get a dynamic process driven by political objectives, which then determines a group's position in the complex of civic stratification. So in-country asylum seekers are constructed as deviant and denied welfare rights. But it's interesting that several writers in this field predict increasing recourse to legal action on behalf of vulnerable groups. Now, one form, a, a response to um, removal of a right could take would be public campaigning. But where the public image of a group has already been undermined, there's little scope for action of that sort. And that's where recourse to the courts becomes much more likely. And as I mentioned before, in fact, the withdrawal of welfare from in-country asylum claimants has been the subject of 15 different legal judgments. Um, I'm just going to talk about a couple of the more recent ones. Um, the question at issue was whether destitution for asylum seekers amounted to inhuman and degrading treatment. And this introduced a further classificatory question, which was what level of suffering was necessary for a finding of inhuman and degrading treatment? 
the legal history is long and complex, but it could be crystallised by reference to two opposing High Court judgments. One was a judgment on the case of Zardash, and it came to be described as the wait-and-see approach. This approach stated that for a finding of inhuman and degrading treatment, there must be evidence that attempts to find charitable support failed, that there had been suffering in excess of that common to all disbenefited asylum seekers. So it had to be an extreme case. That there should be, quote, discernible evidence of the requisite level of severity. And one would expect, quote, a measure of starvation and debilitation. So you wait and see until that has happened. An opposing judgment in the case of Limbuela was termed the common sense approach. And this approach stated, lacking support, someone would soon reach the level required for a finding of inhuman and degrading treatment. The wording of section 55.5 was to avoid a breach of convention rights, and there is therefore no need to wait and see. So they were the two opposing positions that were at play in the judgments. And in a sense, those two judgments represent two different paradigms of interpretation of inhuman and degrading treatment, um, an expansive one and a restrictive one. And if you like, you could see them as a post-national or cosmopolitan interpretation and a national restrictive interpretation. The policy implications of the two cases were very different. The common sense approach would mean that a large majority of cases were almost immediately brought back into entitlement. So it's not surprising that the decision on Limbuela, the common sense approach, was appealed twice by the government. So it was heard in the Court of Appeal and then the House of Lords. And both courts found against the government. <coughs> but there was an interesting dissenting opinion in the Court of Appeal. This supported the government's right to impose suffering in relation to legitimate policy goals. And those legitimate policy goals were immigration control and the protection of national resources. And it was argued that a ruling of inhuman and degrading treatment would emasculate the policy. Although that opinion was eventually dismissed in the House of Lords, I think the content of it is interesting and it's further illustration of this idea of a paradigm struggle in the relation to the interpretation of an absolute right, that's protection from inhuman and degrading treatment. Um, I'm not going to go on for much longer, but there was a particular puzzle in this for me, which was the question of quite how the judgment was made. So 
you can read the judgments and you get the legal rationale and an argument that's presented in terms of references to inhumanity, degradation, the standards of civilised society, and so on. But in fact, the judgment is actually setting those standards itself. They don't exist necessarily outside of the judgment. So the puzzle for me was how the principle underpinning inhuman and degrading treatment was translated into concrete indicators. And the most clues I got for that came initially from an intervention by Shelter, um, who gave the following description of sleeping on the streets. Every part of your body in contact with the ground will hurt. If it is cold or raining and you do not have adequate protection, you will experience the sensation of freezing and you will feel completely miserable, especially if you are hungry or feeling sad. Some kind of bodily injury is inevitable. This then leads to the further argument to require special and detailed evidence of intense suffering in circumstances when any ordinary person would suffer intensely entails regarding the person as less than ordinarily human. So the circumstances of the disbenefited asylum seekers were then described as an exclusion from ordinary social existence and an act of social ostracism. Both the Court of Appeal case and the House of Lords case also cited a witness statement from a refugee council worker who stated, on one occasion I had to tell a group of three homeless asylum seekers to leave the building on a Friday evening during a torrential downpour with nothing more than a blanket each, a food parcel, most of the contents of which had to be cooked and a list of day centres. When I saw them the following morning, their condition had deteriorated considerably. Their clothes were filthy, they had started to smell and been unable to find any of the centres listed. So these quotes are in different ways attempts to translate principles into concrete criteria. And finally, in the House of Lords judgment, you get a statement of what that actually means in these particular cases. And that was being homeless or seriously hungry or lacking facilities for basic hygiene. So one can only speculate what's the material that I just cited What's the work it's doing in these judgments? And it's partly an attempt to make another suffering knowable. So it has a kind of epistemological role. Because a paradigm struggle can't be resolved by evidence alone. It's the means by which evidence is interpreted. So those quotations, it seems to me, are attempting to invite an identification with suffering and to 
highlight the indignity and inhumanity of the experience of being destitute on the streets. So this then finally translates in human and degrading into your concrete criteria as a level below which asylum seekers should not be allowed to fall. So if you like, that judgment places a limit on the lower reaches of civic stratification. You could maybe ask broader questions, again thinking about this formal and informal dynamic. Could such a judgment serve to restore the public standing of the group? Or will the judgment provoke a backlash which will further, um, further detract from the public standing of the group? How far does judgment have an educative role in society? Those are questions that I haven't been able to pursue, but strike me as interesting questions. We should also note the limitations of this ruling. At the time, there were an estimated 26,000 failed asylum seekers for whom that finding had no impact. Enforced destitution was still a legitimate government policy for that group. So even universal human rights can be implicated in drawing boundaries of inclusion and exclusion. Also, the judgment didn't apply to maintenance-only cases. These were cases where asylum seekers had opted to live with friends, therefore didn't need the housing element, but could claim maintenance. Um, the House of Lords criteria, being seriously hungry or lacking facilities for basic hygiene, could conceivably apply to that group, but a case had never been brought about the maintenance only um, cases and they weren't uh, affected by the, the judgment that had been made. So there's a sense there that theirs would be a harder case to fight. So it's only the winnable cases that have their day in court. Um, and finally, it was quite explicit in the judgments that the finding had no implications for the indigenous homeless. So you have, in some respects, an instance of expansion but an instance which is quite careful to draw its boundaries in terms of who the cases apply to and who they do not apply to. Um, and the study more generally, I think, offers an example of the tension that happens when the normative meets the empirical. And it revisits the opposition that I posed in the opening of this paper, the post-national expansion, as opposed to national closure and looks at how that gap is negotiated in practice. So I hope that I've shown how the idea of civic stratification can open many doors in terms of the sorts of questions that we ask of migration 
and access to rights and gives us also some clues as to how to go about analysing those dynamics. Thank you.